Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, a former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. Also, I was an Assistant Secretary of Commerce, and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We're a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership on keeping the blue economy at the forefront of American conservation and prosperity. Well, today, folks, I am totally stoked about this episode. We are going to discuss surfing and the American blue economy, and we are going to look at things like surfing contests, the travel industry support to surf destination tourism, surfers as conservationists, and how the science of wave and weather prediction supports professional and amateur surfers all across America. So first up uh, on our list of guests, I am honored to welcome big wave and professional surfing legend Ian Kanga Carnes, returning to our show after his first uh, appearance uh, over a year ago. Kanga, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks, Tim. It's uh, really nice to be back here. The I've spent my entire life in the blue economy, and so it's a really important thing. And in, fa- in fact, I've witnessed the degradation of the, the coastal shorelines, particularly places like Bali. I was there first in 1972. And just to, just to see the... Um, the litter that was I saw in Denpasar now be in the ocean. Um, yeah, there's a big problem out there in the surf world with plastic pollution. Yeah, you know this uh, because of your longevity and starting out in the 70s in Western Australia and surfing all around the world. So really appreciate your authoritative voice, and it's just great to reconnect with you. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure, mate. And uh, I'm interested to hear what the, your other guests have to say. Well, right on. And so we also have joining us Dr. Niraja Havaligi. She is a graduate faculty instructor in the Environmental Sciences Graduate Program at Oregon State University. And she's also doing international development work as an expert for the UN. Niraja, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Nice to be here. All right. Wonderful. And we also have Charlie Fox. He is my former Navy shipmate. And now the owner and lead forecaster for the nearshore wave and weather forecasting company, Sea Fox Surf. Charlie, thanks for dropping in, shipmate. Hey, Tim. It is really great to be here. Cool, cool. Well, all right. Well, hey, I want to start with you, Ian. Uh, you, uh, you, you have such a really broad uh, experience base in the blue economy, as you expertly just introduced. And, uh, you know, you're really surfing royalty. And I hope our audience really appreciates that and looks you up. You, I mean, I think you're one of your first debuts was winning the Smirnoff Pro at Sunset Beach in Oahu in 1973, which is incredible. And um, and then uh, uh, doing so many things in your life in the in the world of professional surfing, really establishing it, which you uh, is uh, I think really well told in your book Kanga, which uh, is really the history of pro surfing. So d- just could you provide before we get into the d- details, just an introduction of yourself, uh, which you'll do much better than I have. Well, thanks, Tim. Yeah, I, I'm from Margaret River in Western Australia. Um, you know, I, I grew up actually in Perth and these tiny little waves and uh, 200 miles south, it was kind of like the North Shore of Oahu. So my, my youth was in big, powerful reef break waves. And if you look at Cape Lewin, it's one of the southern capes in the world. Um, it's where the big swells hit as they travel around the southern hemisphere, around the Antarctica. And, you know, so we're in, you know, Australia is in the, uh, the sphere of um, Southeast Asia. And, you know, so it's, I've traveled uh, competitively all over the world and, you know, surfed in, you know, most of the oceans, um, not, not yet in the Mediterranean. And it's, it's just the, um, the lifestyle that I've lived, the opportunities of becoming uh, you know, world champion athlete, the uh, the people I've met, the friends I've made, uh, competing on the Australian team a couple of times. Yeah, that's right. Becoming coach of the United States team and winning three you know, world championships with surfing teams. 
these are all, gosh that's great yeah and you know in the end uh i'm a surfer and my wife is a former world champion surfer and um you know we wake up in the morning on laguna beach and check the waves and uh, what do we want to do together we just love going surfing and so uh, it's it's our life it's our world it's our business and it's really really distressing to see the um the proliferation of plastic waste that comes down rivers whether it's in latin america whether it's in asia where the the lack of um, understanding of what the outcome is for this waste and how it's killing the ocean um you know there's a lot of education that needs to be done but first we got to do cleanup right on yeah when i was at NOAA, i think you know this uh, we had a marine debris program that we uh, increased funding for just to help not only clean up beaches around here but but like you said educate and prevent and when i say here in america but also work with partners and like you said a lot of this originates in asia in the rivers in Asia. So helping them build their waste management capacity is just critical. We'll, we'll dive in a little more, but I, I wanted to get to all our guests just for brief intros here. So that leads me to Naraja. And it, thank you so much for coming because you're the one that gave me this idea. Uh, I was introduced to you by our, our fellow uh, friend and mentor, Tony Maranto, uh, Maranto at the company Linker. And he shared with me work you were doing with the UN on uh, surf ecosystems. But before we talk about that, that really cool concept, just, just introduce yourself and tell us about uh, what, what you do and, and ha, ha, what your PhD is in and, and what your, the efforts you're, you're doing at Oregon State University. Thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, before I get on to my own introduction, I wanted to just say, Ian, so good to hear about you and um, what you're doing. Yeah, it just sets the pace for me, kind of, really imagine the ocean and uh, the waves that you mentioned that you go out and watch. Uh, right now in front of me is a big um, gore, gore tree and a maple tree. So that's the scenery I am in. But I can imagine what surf means to you, what the ocean means to you. So that being said, um, Tim, I, a little bit about myself, geographically, I'm from India, earlier part of my life, mm -hmm. and la la the latter parts of my life has been in the US and Canada for the past few decades. Professionally, I wear a few hats. I am a graduate faculty at uh, Environmental Sciences Graduate Program at Oregon State University. I teach and I mentor students. And I'm also an international development expert for biodiversity and climate change. And I've worked with UN agencies such as FAO, UNDP, and UNIDO. And I've also worked in different capacities with sustainability nonprofits and startups that focus on sustainability, particularly food um, security and sustainability education. And as a parent volunteer at PTAs, I work with students and parents to establish hands-on learning spaces for biodiversity, history, culture through creating school gardens where you know students are just students, teachers, everybody is hands-on working and learning uh, biodiversity, history, culture through gardens. And as part of my, um, you know, why I am in this, in this profession and multiple hats. I, I guess as I've always been driven by curiosity as a child, like to understand how things work around me and how they work, how they are connected, where, where things can break down and, you know, trying to understand these things. And that curiosity led me uh, to a bachelor's in agriculture science. I must say that, um, much of my family back home in India are either in education or medical science or, or they are scientists and engineers. My dad was an agricultural scientist. Um, and probably that also had a big impact on me. Um, so early on as a young kid, I my first exposure to things in water was in his lab where the first time I saw something under the microscope, I saw some amoeba and uh, eublina, and I was like, whoa, this is 
it, it just blew me away the the fascinating things that can live in a lake that can live in a river or an ocean so anyway so i set on my agricultural uh, science path and on the way got very much involved in taking census of birds in uh, rapidly disappearing lakes in bangalore um, in southern southern india and it kind of I, that's when i started making the connection of uh, loss of land rapid urban development loss of watersheds water bodies and basically you know a, an elimination of biodiversity and sort of monoculturing ourselves uh, into what we want to call as food security right and i guess that's where my beginning of my interest came um, towards biodiversity and i pursued it along with a uh, masters in plant physiology where i was looking at impacts of salinity stress uh, in my first masters degree and that kind of started giving me a peek into climate change and the sorts of things we need uh, particularly in context of food systems to conserve biodiversity and that uh, around that time i took a year off and i went off and uh, did a big one year internship at center for ecological sciences in the indian institute of science it's a premier institute in bangalore uh, yeah so i that really gave me the exposure to the kinds of ecological research that's going on in india and outside um really exposing me to the you know intricacies of uh, how human systems impact the other species around us and how we use land water etc and um, along the line i pursued uh, i came to the us to pursue doctoral in molecular biology and uh, somewhere in that program i decided to wrap myself up the second masters and because i wanted to realign myself to more hands-on work with people and people places and environment i didn't see didn't see myself doing the dna thing as much as i was really fascinated and good at it uh, having said that i landed from there with a career in the un um, bringing my knowledge in food systems and looking at the intimate uh, and impactful things that food systems do to ecosystems um, and i uh, you know i'll i'll come to that more later probably um, but yeah during this time uh, was when i also did my phd and that's where uh, dr maronto was my mentor and uh, my PhD was uh, looking at urban food security from the intersectionality of urban agrobiodiversity, greywater and rainwater use, and climate action plans. And Dr. M, as I call him, is the reason we met him, as you said before. <laughs> uh, he knew of my work in UNIDO uh, that brought surfing and biodiversity conservation together. And, and UNIDO is what? Uh, United Nations Industrial Development Organization. Okay, very good. Yeah, okay. So he he thought that that work which I was mentioning to him about um, surfing and biodiversity conservation thought he thought which he is might a, be a, of, yeah. yeah that's a great topic, which I really want you to delve into. Let me first now, so that's wonderful. And I share your scientific curiosity. That's, I didn't know you had two masters and a PhD. Hey, Charlie, uh, same for you. Do you mind just giving our audience a general introduction, how you got into surfing and the Navy and how that path has led to you ultimately becoming an expert surf forecaster? Yeah, Tim, I was raised in a little coastal town called San Clemente in Southern California. And like Ian, it's like once you get that surfing bug, it's it's like a disease, like truly, I can't describe it in any other way. It's, it's like something that I remember like as a, as a high school or actually graduating <laughs> high school, just being terrified of actually having to go to work. And so 
I kind of laugh because I've spent my entire career over three decades, you know, in marine meteorology, like trying not to work, but I've had to work so hard to do that and enjoyed it because of, of what I do has been in the ocean ever since. And, you know, as a, as a young surfer, uh, competing and, you know, a, a short attempt at trying to be a professional surfer, but thankfully landing a job in TV weather, but focusing on the marine customer, like my river has just sort of moved in that, that marine meteorology direction. You know, in, in originally like selfish reasons, you know, to, to learn how to forecast swell, but turning it into a career and you know moving through all of these different you know paths under that umbrella and ending up you know working under you you know something like you know 18 or 19 years ago whenever that was and you know developing it into something completely different in the sense of a customer focusing on the the navy seal program and it's just it's been just a phenomenal ride and i love it that's terrific. And we'll, we'll, I'll ask you to ask or to say more about your working with Navy SEALs. That's how we know each other, too. Uh, at a time, we worked together for the, the command in the Navy that provides weather and ocean information to SEALs that's vital for their operations. Um, so cool, Charlie. And it's just really awesome to connect with you. Um, thanks for the introductions, folks. I want to go back to Kanga. And, and you began talking about marine plastic waste, but really, um, I'd, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on what you've seen and, and maybe examples of good work um, from the surf community and uh, elsewhere. And, and certainly if you, because you, your knowledge of that uh, industry, if you would want to call it that, um, what would the economic uh, impacts and um, uh, implications are, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. Just a, a little brief thing. I work for a company, a friend of mine has 75 patents. Hmm. It's called Sustain It Global, and the the, con the concept is coming up with sustainable solutions. Um, he has a patent that uh, for solar panels that enables us in exactly the same space to increase the power and energy generation between 100 and 150% by thinking in the 3D space rather than the 2D uh, space. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really kind of remarkable, and, uh, you know, this is, which it goes against all physics, but it actually works. And so, and the, there's a concept there that people that get rigidly indoctrinated or educated in certain things sometimes get blinders on for finding solutions that are sort of outside the norm. And, you know, that's, that's what Nick has done. The other thing is single serve plastics. Um, he has a, a coffee patent process that enables single serve coffee for Nespresso and Keurig machines. Oh, really? With no waste, zero waste. Uh, you, you know, I, I have a, a Nespresso box basically, and I have a machine and I go all around the world traveling and I usually see that those packages and you're right, it's amazingly wasteful if you drink as much coffee as I do. So how, how does that work? Well, 100% of Keurig goes into plastic waste. There's no recycling. Right, right. It, Nespresso Star, they did an aluminum uh, capsule, and only 18% of those are recycled. So the rest goes into waste. So it's, it's egregious, um, and people should feel guilty when they use those machines. But what Nick has come up with is a process that takes a coffee syrup and freezes it and turns it into a a puck that can be put into the either of the machines and you get a great cup of coffee. It actually, zero waste. Zero waste. I mean, if you put that into a glass bottle um, with a with a recyclable or, you know, lid, you, you can have the exact same coffee experience with no waste. And if you look at the plastic waste that's coming down rivers, we have to find solutions that, um, for products, consumer products that eliminate waste, and whether it's plastic bottles or whether it's the, um, I mean, the EU is about to ban um, these single serve coffee um, capsules, and that is, you know, to me, it, the it's a good thing. But you've got to got to find a consumer friendly solution, and, 
and so this is this is part of you know my daily work is doing this sort of stuff. You're the chief operating officer, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Nick Nick is an incredibly uh, Nick Singer is an incredibly brilliant guy who's you know getting these patents. We've got new patents going in for new types of solar panels. My job is to go. Wait a minute, Nick. Let's try and commercialize and find some way to actually generate revenue from some of these ideas and let's put them in the marketplace. Oh man. I mean, the hotels all across the world would want to buy that. And cause that you go, to, this is what they advertise now. They want to be sustainable and they, that's how they, they get customers. It's, it's really important. Um, in fact, well, yeah. And going back to marine plastic pollution, you also mentioned, uh, the example of, of four ocean that's that started by surfers, right? Yeah. It started by a surfer in Florida. Um, and you know, effectively, what they do is they you know they pick up waste off beaches, plastic waste, and they they recycle it into jewelry that's sold in surf shops, so you can buy it online. And I I saw a really interesting program they were doing in Ecuador, which has like egregious plastic waste on the beaches, and 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 so they were cleaning it up, and then they found local artisans to actually make the jewelry. So here, here you have a recycling effort that links it to artisan work. And so you're providing, uh, you know, work in, in an extra piece of the economy. And, you know, these, these are sort of uh, artistic solutions to a horrible problem. And, you know, it's just really interesting. Um, India has got a big problem, but there are now surf schools in India that have waste cleanups on the beach after a big storm and the rivers watch you know wash all the plastic waste down and then the surf school cleans it up and you and i both you know, you know surfing is growing dramatically worldwide and the the impact you know we don't want to be you know surfing on a dirty beach and for sure tourists will not will not be going to dirty beaches that are covered in waste so there's a, a massive blue economy um, impact that has to be addressed because you know you just imagine all these incredible beaches. Or you look at the plastic that's coming in the ocean in Bali, for for heaven's sake, one of the most beautiful places in the world. So, uh, four oceans doing that. The ocean cleanup has ships out in the ocean pulling huge amounts of plastic waste out of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. They also have a system where they provide booms across a river that catches all of this waste that flowing, that's flowing down in rainy times, and so it doesn't get to the ocean. So, you know, four oceans and the ocean cleanup have active solutions for this problem today. And, you know, that, you know these, are, these are the groups of people that we should be supporting. Absolutely. Yeah, I did. A, I, I oversaw a study at NOAA that looked at a number of beaches around the country, West Coast, Gulf, East Coast, and in the Great Lakes. And just any given beach uh, for a whole year, they looked at the impact of either cleaning up, you know, the plastic waste or or just trash in general or not. And and in in each area, we're just talking one county, like Orange County, California, where, where you're near. It's a hundred a hundred million dollar uh, impact and uh, and thousands of jobs in terms of the, the the tourism and the surf shops and the restaurants and everything else that's supporting that that coastal economy. But what's what, what's cool, uh, Ian, is that um, so as you said, surfers, you're like the prime example here uh, of the job you have now, a, very, a sustainably a sustainable um, job that you have, a company that you're the COO of, and and you're this this long, long time professional surfer. And it's just an example of how the surfing community is so invested in sustainable solutions to keep our, our, our coast, coast and ocean healthy. And that's what, that, that's what Naraja has done with these surf ecosystem studies that she supported. Uh, and so Naraja, like this is a perfect introduction for you. If you just don't mind, if you wouldn't mind explaining that and the, the research you, you shared with me. So yeah, the two papers I I shared, uh, one was from 2018 and the other from 2021. Um, I think the first one is the Shiske et al. 2018 and uh, Rainman 2021, where they, um, as you said, they argue for protecting the surf breaks. Yeah, and um, the idea is uh, the argument is based on what kind of ecosystem services that. Surf waves, surf waves or surf 
ecosystems provides to the coastal communities. I wanted to uh, just uh, there's a really great quote from the one of the papers, and it ta- it's that um, they looked at this the potential of surfing resources, a new conservation asset class. I, that, I've not heard of surf breaks to be called that, but it's it's a brilliant concept and connection, and uh, and it calls the surfing community an underutilized conservation constituency. Uh, so that's that's the concept. Yes, per- perfect. I think you landed on the core of the um, of the idea of those two um, of those two papers and actually there are a few more papers on that line um, more recent um, that being said this project uh, to me came out as uh, really unique uh, for that particular reason one is we are looking at um, and I believe I think you'll all agree with me that we are in a time and space where I think it's a all hands, all um, you know, all types of approach to address the rapid loss of biodiversity and the climate impacts that we are seeing. So all hands on deck, as they say in the Navy. Yes, I, yes, perfect, perfect, Tim. Yeah. So if all hands are to be on the deck, we need everybody who has some sort of relationship with with the ecosystems, right, at, at a very personal level. And I believe surfers have that, you know, like, um, you know, uh, to to quote this, uh, E.O. Wilson, Dr. E.O. Wilson, who's the biodiversity guru, um, who's, who talked about this one word called biophilia. Like this, is, this is the word he used to express human um, ability to have a relationship to have an affinity to other um, other species right so this this um, these papers are basically um, tapping into that relationship that surfers have because they are in most um, constant contact um, uh, and they are observing they are actually experiencing what happens at at the um, at those breaks and um, so having said that these papers are um, drawing attention to surf breaks as natural resources that provide uh, uh, aesthetic inspiration recreation cultural identity and those types of things they, they also uh, talk about the health benefits and they um, they call it the blue gym because mm, of blue gym how about that Kinga? <laughs> yeah uh, and uh, to the kinds of health and cognitive benefits and um, um, stress relief that is offered by these places and and the other part of ecosystem services is the cultural identity that it provides to people. Like people have a sense of place, a sense of community, and they are woven together, diverse people with diverse interests, but they are connected to this place, to these waves, to this sense of, you know, something that brings everybody together to this place, right? So these are the types of ecosystem services that the papers highlight i mean apart from that of course is this huge economic benefit um, uh, and you know uh, that's up to 31 to 64 billion per year that's this uh, surf tourism industry wow is uh, that worldwide yeah so that that's what uh, that's the kind of um, uh, yeah, when it, I take my daughters to the surf surf shops in the Outer Bank, <laughs> uh, my my wallet is empty afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Why am I not surprised, uh, Tim? <laughs> I, I ha- uh, my two girls are scuba divers, and uh, since uh, and when they, uh, you know, I, I kind of know what it means to be ready to be a scuba diver, right? I mean, uh, and. And while I'm not a diver or a swimmer, but I did go off um, uh, diving as a guided dive in in Catalina Islands just because I simply wanted to experience what is it there that unites this 70% concept, right? My body is 70% water and out there is 70% of ocean and 
there's something that connects, right? Uh, but, but so you were diving on kelp beds. I've, I've had a um, I've had a number of shows where we featured diving and its contributions to the blue economy. Uh, I, we will I will talk more with you about that. Um, but uh, so we this this conservation discussion is terrific. But there's also a really cool scientific aspect of surfing that Charlie's a pro on and, and does for a living. And so if I could shift gears just a little bit and talk to you, Charlie, about about what you do. And uh, I mean, how many like you work for Surfline? I'm really interested to know about your experience there and how that company has grown. And uh, now there are others like it. What do you what do you have to offer there, Charlie? Well, I started with uh, Surfline when I was in high school. I was and the company was a year old, and Ian probably remembers it was back in the day when it was the nine seven six nine hundred numbers. Yeah, so and they, you know, and so I started with them. I was in high school, and it was it was uh, I was an observer uh, reporter, and it was pretty crazy because the form that they had us fill out was something I look at now as a professional, and the, I when I went back. Uh, more recently, and I was working at Surfline in the mid 2000s. I was working as a forecaster and a director of forecasting. I was trying to find these forms because, so you know, we call the term uh, spectral analysis when we when we look at a wave gauge and we pull apart the different wave layers. And so, from the observer standpoint, some you know clueless kid in high school, I was supposed to pick out the primary, secondary, tertiary waves direction get out of here on each one of these things and then just by eyeballing eyeballing it and you can do that but it's it's pretty crazy that that was the early expectation and i think that went uh you know flush down the toilet you know i don't know how long that lasted we never filled those that's but you're you're really dating yourself and that's how the navy used to do it it was it was the mark one mod zero eyeball that you'd get surf ops from and well we've come quite a long way so this is great how do we do it today? Well, um, I wish it was that uh, intricate. I know that you and I, uh, when we were working together, remember the camera systems we were trying to integrate where the camera actually watched the surf. We did it in a couple of uh, couple of uh, uh, tech demos where there's this camera, and it was actually an outfit out of Australia, and the camera watches the waves. You set it up on the beach, and it's just this basic video camera and it's, it's calibrated and it, it can measure the wave height based on the pixelation, how, where the outer bar is, the inner bar. Uh, it can pick up like different pieces of the parameters of wave periods. Yeah. You, Noah's, Noah's taking that data and applying machine learning algorithms to uh, forecast rip currents. It's got a rip current model. Yeah. No, and that, and it's, it's Did you, phenomenal. You wear that? Well, I wasn't aware that, that Noah was doing that, but that's what they were doing in Australia. Uh, and, and just because they were, they were trying to map beach morphology and it could, you know, when you paired it with a buoy offshore, uh, the predictiveness, the predictive ability became, you know, like the human brain that was, from what I remember, like well surpassing any of the nearshore models because it's like what does, right? It's empirical. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's so interesting. I'm curious, how big of a company is Surfline now? Well, I, I am not really privy to that kind of information, uh, but it's a pretty, just from the, looking from the outside, a, a pretty large company seeing that they've got hundreds of cameras around the world and you know um mm, wow uh, tens of forecasters that, that work for them all over the world and, and yeah pretty significant company now and your company though you you have a who are your customers now so my company is just me i i, uh, I don't want an employee uh just not, <laughs> I'm, hard enough, I'm hard enough to deal with just myself so <laughs> so i and sort of a boutique consultant where I just have pigeonholed myself now with uh, Naval Special Warfare and I have contracts with Naval Special Warfare. And so I just, I work and stay in that uh, near shore zone. And so I am exclusively working uh, with the Navy SEAL program in near shore prediction and exploitation. And that's from you know, training through planning to even deployment and execution. So it runs that whole gamut. Yeah, that's a, that's a customer that that really um, 
you need to build a relationship with. You just don't you just don't throw your information over the fence because they, they they need to have trust. Well, and that's where the the training comes in, and we do these uh, typically five day courses. We'll do them all over, but I you know do a lot in uh, the South Orange County area just because of the coastline. There's so many facets to it where you have this similar coastline to almost anywhere in the world, and plus the tidal range, so you can really see the the nuances of the ah. surf zone. You know, steep beaches, gradual beaches, cliffs, boulders. You know, all of the different type, wave types, and and then we'll we'll do short classroom sessions, very minimal, and most of it is is in the water. So we're making predictions. They're using imagery, and, and these are operators, and and they're, they're sketching, and it's it's. Uh, and then we get in the water, get into the, the currents and waves that they predicted and, and see how they compare. And so it's just that rote, you know, practice learning. And it's, it's been very, it's been very successful, particularly when something real comes on the horizon. And now you have uh, groups of people and, and, and a common ground. Yeah, Charlie, I, this is interesting. I, I don't, I don't know if I told you this, tell me if I did. But um, I uh, found, had on my show a group called Force Blue, retired special forces divers that do marine conservation. And we went out and uh, we went, did a dive in this uh, marine sanctuary in the Potomac River where there's all these shipwrecks. And my, my partner said he was trained by you. He did some uh, big wave jet ski, jet ski operations. Was, was that with you or I think? So, so I would so, – so there's two, there's two guys, two groups that do – that have contracts with – Naval Special Warfare, and you have Ken Bradshaw, famous big wave surfer. That's it, Ken Bradshaw. And then you have another uh, guy, uh, a guy named Todd Bradley and Brian Kialana uh, with iWaterman. And so both of them do these MRV, they, they're jet skis, but of course, That's you know it. how the Navy is, you got to call it something else, otherwise they think you're having fun. But it's true. So it's, it's called an MRV, and so they do these courses where they, they will teach expert level ski mastery in and through the surf zones and so when i couple with those guys and they do their course and then i'm doing my prediction exploitation with the same guys so we'll look at the same locations that they're going to be going out to they'll map the surf zone do all the predictive pieces and then when they go out on the skis they have an idea of what to expect so it's you know, when I've worked with them, that's that's how it's that's how it worked. Two separate contractors, but at the same time. That's cool. And I've I've also had on my show um, some folks from the Navy, and the Navy, wherever they are in Hawaii or in Southern California, they're actually a giant blue economy contributor because of all the all the all that they pour into local economies whenever sailors get stationed in places. You know this well. And um, but let me let me go back to Kanga, uh, Ian. You. You you've probably surfed against Ken Bradshaw, is that right? Oh yeah, I did uh, quite a bit. He he was um, he became actually really really good at Sunset Beach, and uh, so uh, he he was uh, you know, possibly a generation younger than me. Okay, and, uh, you know, so he got really really good. And uh, th- this is interesting, Charlie, because I've just done a stand up paddle veterans retreat in Mexico were in, with a number of seals and you know marines and the I realized that my background in surfing because it's what I coach strategy in the lineup is exactly what you're talking about it's understanding the swirls it's understanding but the near shore bathymetry it's under understanding all of those elements to figure out where the best waves are what the easiest pathway out to the outside is, um, you know, whether you go now or do you wait for the end of a set, all of these things, I think there's a there's a huge opportunity to expand the knowledge and understanding of that n- near shore broken water environment um, to seals and other special forces. And I've saw it in action in Rockaway Beach in New York when unfortunately some kids got washed off a jetty and the rescue diver was two foot off the beach getting bounced around in three foot waves when all the water jacked up against the jetty, went out to sea and then south down the coast. Like obviously this kid was going to be found two, 300 yards down the coast. And the, the, the lack of understanding of this near shore turbulent environment 
is sort of like astonishing to me. Ian, you bring up a great point. So you're talking it like I, I do a course in Puerto Rico and there's one particular place that we go to and it's got all these, uh, you know, death, death to swimmer signs on the beach and we'll typically have lifeguards come running down and, and we're all getting in the water at the rip right next to the, where the water's shooting out. And I'm trying to explain to the guy that we're, we're trying to get in this rip because we're trying to demonstrate that's what, and the rip is actually, that's what's going to get us off, offshore. But you're absolutely right. People just are, they don't understand that, that this is water's predictably moving throughout a surf zone and, and particularly for competing. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we rock up to the beach and one glimpse and we've mapped the entire lineup. You know, swell direction, channels, frequency of sets, um, you know, near shore drift. It's, you know, this is this is sort of like a picture of Huntington Beach. What's the swell direction? Yeah. And when, when guys are geared up and they're, they're carrying, you know, 60, 80 pounds, that knot and a half, two knot current, they're not swimming against it. It's like you better know where you're going and, and uh, figure out that free ride or you're just going to go somewhere. The ocean's going to take you. And so that's what we're trying to. The ocean takes you like just I was watching my son. He was surfing up in uh, Santa Cruz on at the, uh, the Coldwater Classic uh, last week. And I'm, I'm watching him and he's he's sitting stationary paddling against this, uh, you know, current coming in. And I was like, kid, you should know better. You helped me with these classes. I mean, he, he told me he told me yeah, he told me afterward. No, I had to stay right there because that's where the best way was. But I was like, oh, my gosh, you looked like I was just like bowing my head going, oh, my gosh, this is just terrible. That's really interesting. Yeah. Hey, but, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, going into back to a, kind of an economic uh, contribution uh, aspect, you had this really awesome show that I loved and my, my kids loved called World of Waves. Um, and, and so that kind of made me think about the media um, opportunities in terms of economic opportunities that surfing generates. How did that show do? Oh, it, it was very, very popular on the networks. So it was, of course, it was during COVID, so we couldn't find any sponsors. So, oh, is that what happened? Oh. Yeah, yeah. It, it, economically, it was horrible. But the content, uh, because I had this belief that everyone in the water riding some energy is a surfer. Yeah, and, yeah, that's right. And so, um, which is diametrically opposed to the world of shortboard surfing. Like, if you're not a shortboard surfer, um, then you're a nobody in the water. And, you know, so it's... There's this there's this conflict, um, you know, because I grew up in Western Australia, uh, I was surfing by myself in big reef waves, and I would just love to have other people come out surfing with me. And it's in crowded conditions like California, like crowds and kooks and all of this all of this horrible negative attitude occurs in in a sport that to me is just like uh, and. Norigia has been talking about all of these phys positive physical benefits you get from this environment, you know, the way it, it triggers endorphins and all the other, you know, chemicals in the body. And then you get into conflict in the water, which actually turns us into our inner animal. And so there's this dichotomy in surfing that I just don't understand. Yeah, your sh that show did a great job on that because uh, everything was, it was so positive. It was just all positive. And I like that. I think it doesn't um, it doesn't do any good to be territorial and, and ex exclusive. And you your show is totally inclusive of all type of wave riders. Heck, you went to Lake Tahoe, didn't you? Yeah, we went to Lake Tahoe. We went to Texas. Yeah, that, that was about, a cool show. Yeah, wake surfing. I mean, those people are surfers. Like, everyone that rides a wave, doesn't matter what board you're on, you think you're a surfer. So I'm just saying that in, in our community in the surf world, we need to embrace everyone and be happy they're here with us. That's that's just such a cool attitude. I I, I really uh, admire that. And actually, and so you know, and let's go back to Niraja and your work. Um, I really was excited to have you on this show because just like Ian has done, making waves more accessible. I, I like to have a diverse uh, group of guests. And your your background, having grown up in India, I always like to have women on our show because uh, I have three daughters, and I really want to showcase women in the blue economy and, and certainly scientists like you who are so important. Um, you, in our discussion yesterday, Niraja, we um, chatted a bit about your, your focus is, I guess not focus, but your expertise is on the land uh, in terms of um, agriculture. And, uh, but, but we talked about how so much on the land influences what goes into the water. We already talked about plastics. 
Um, could you, you share with me a little bit, and you, you started on your PhD work and, and how that might uh, um, lend insights into preventing pollution and restoring our oceans? Yeah, um, thanks, Sam. Um, um, that's, a, that's a big question, and I, I think... It, oh, yeah, just tell me your PhD <laughs> in one sentence. I know yeah, I get that all the time. I, I'd say my PhD was simply looking at... Um, in one sentence, it was looking at what's the impact of our everyday food system and the way we consume and produce food. Um, and is there anything we can do within urban settings and um, to, to, you know, to do, uh, to decrease our impact on biodiversity to decrease our impact on how we use water into ag systems uh, and how we use energy you know, someone like Char yeah. uh, like yeah. uh, Ian's so company basically is trying to you're right so that was the focus and i was looking at climate action plans that um what do we have in place uh in the climate action plans to to um to ensure uh, food security that is sustainable, um, water security that is accessible, equitable to people, all people, and to ecosystems. That, that's the kind of uh, work I was looking at. But to come back to um, a sentence that caught me before in your uh, earlier conversation, the ocean will take you, um, you know, when um, I think, was it Ian or... Um, you're mentioning about your um, how things can quickly change in the ocean, in the within the surf systems, and we are, and how people are not aware of what is happening there. To me, as a biodiversity person and as a person who works with people for biodiversity conservation, um, I see that until we I mean, how many of us surfers or, well, you know, if I ask surfers, how many of the kelp system here is, um, what species of kelp systems are endangered here, or, or which uh, which are listed under the IUCN red list in these ecosystems, in these marine ecosystems? I, I feel like I would get a pretty good response, or at least I will expect uh, get um, an open-ended curiosity to understand. They want to know, and I I feel like this is where um, you know what I think Ian mentioned much earlier in the conversation about blinders, right? The, so I feel surfers may not all be having blinders. There are people who come out uh, with more um, open approach to uh, seeing things. And that's where this project made sense to me. And these papers are uh, gave me as um, a, an idea that, hey, this, this probably is a groundbreaking project where you're bringing surfers, you're bringing a lot of associated um, blue economy that's attached to the surfing community and and then you have these local coastal communities that are already part of the blue ecosystem and they are dependent on tourism and etc hospitality and there is a whole bunch of uh, blue economic systems that are again all layered into this uh, surfing and um, marine protected areas and that kind of thing and one of the things that I would like to highlight in that paper was the specific thing uh, of this, um, you know, the 2021 spatial analysis that they did, and they found the key biodiversity areas. There's an overlap between key biodiversity areas and marine protected areas and surf breaks. So this was this was like about 3,700. Uh, etc. Surf breaks that were um, that were studied, uh, and I bet, I bet, I bet Ian's <laughs> been to all of them. That, yeah, I mean, it would be nice if you know people like Ian would be hopping into these kinds of studies because uh, I'll, I'll yeah, share the that, paper with you, Ian. 
yeah, yeah that's please, please fascinating do. for me that people like you could become part of this really hands-on type of biodiversity research yeah the, the, look the Surfrider foundation has a, a pretty wide network and the ceo lives in laguna beach just around the corner his twin boys yeah his twin boys oh, are a week yeah. older than mine and, and so we're, we're kind of neighbors and i i I think that the fragmentation of the surf environmental world um, takes necessary funding and gives insufficient funding to a lot of people. It'd be better if it was more consolidated and there was a better plan. That's a good observation. I I find that, yeah. uh, And then you see individual nonprofits being uh, sort of, they're a silo. They don't collaborate. And and, and, yeah, that's a a good observation. Yeah, that's right. They're competing for money. Uh, yep. It's like government agencies, actually. You'll see some agencies. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but there's a lot of repetition in government. I want to make one point. to I'm a really, really big fan of regenerative farming. And the way that the that it's, that it's healing the, the soil, and you're talking about food security. Food We die if there's, if there's not sufficient food security. And, and then the massive agri- agricultural business where it's monoculture and the way they, they are destroying the so- soil with insecticides and herbicides, this, this, this can be turned around by a network of regenerative farms that can be tied into community gardens and tied into personal gardens. There are, there are cities in America that you can get fined if you plant a fruit tree in your front yard. Yeah. That, so actually, Narasha and I were talking about a, a farm she worked on, an urban farm. What, what was the name of that one in Oakland, Narasha? Uh, City Slicker Farms. There you go. Yeah. Uh, is, is, that a, is, is that the type that Ian's talking about? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's one of the things, yeah, uh, relatable very much. Um, so you're right, Ian. I mean, uh, re- regenerative farming, I think, uh, is groundbreaking in so many ways. And coming back to marine ecosystems, there is regenerative kelp farming and other types of, um, you know, um, biodiversity-friendly uh, ways of um, cultivating food systems within the uh, marine, um, larger marine ecosystems. So, yeah, th- that uh, being said, um, the other thing you mentioned, Ian, about, uh, you know, you, you talked about regenerative, and I think I heard from both of you uh, about having, you know, having the least impact possible and leaving the place as it is or better, right? At least we can strive to leave the place better. I think that's that's something as an ethical thing that connects surfers because you are so um, into what you experience there. And uh, whether there is a competition or uh, whatever for funds and etc., I still think just the desire to protect that place and desire to protect that area because you're so, uh, I don't know if it is spiritual or you have some sort of um, connection to it, will help people to overcome and reach hands beyond those spaces where we typically won't, right? And I I, I feel like this kind of projects which um, I had the, for, uh, you know, I was fortunate to work with is where I see environmental law uh, folks who are working um, and established a legal mechanism to protect surf breaks by law, as S- uh, SPDA has done, and it is uh, Peru has uh, done that too, right? Yeah, that's that's SPDA in Peru, and that is uh, Bruno Monteferri who's reading, uh, who leads that um, agency. And I, I was, um, uh, in, you know. I was fortunate that I was able to speak with Bruno uh, during the initial steps of the project and also with uh, Nick Strong uh, of uh, Save the Waves. And it kind of, uh, you know, sets this path. Like if Peru is able to start this legal mechanism and establish it in 2000, 
20, uh, was it 2001, I believe. Um, that's, is that the World Surfing Resort? Yes. That's, that's at Juan Chaco. Ah. Uh, no, uh, I'm not sure, Ian. I, I don't know about uh, exactly where it is, but I, I know the legal mechanism to, uh, to uh, protect the surf wave and probably uh, that sound the name sounds familiar probably that was the first one to be protected there's there's a really really big issue in peru yes it is and it has moved and and this the model which they used to push for the legislation is now being also adapted in chile and it will be in costa rica as i understand culturally they their garbage dump is at the shoreline they created really, really big dumps. This is in Lima, also in Huanchaco. So all of the trash from the city gets dumped in the ocean. And so there, there needs to be, they need to clean that up first. That, that's a big, and in a third world country, like how do you have the funds to do that? I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah I do want to just go back to something else. A neat, a neat thread that has popped up here uh, is innovating in thought, right? Like, so this is this idea of surf ecosystems and and using those as a point for um, advancing biodiversity because of the invested nature of surfers in the ocean is uh, is a really cool thing. And and what you're doing with your company, Ian, in terms of just innovation and all these patents here for sustainability that your your CEO uh, has. And, uh, and it certainly makes me think of Charlie because Charlie, you uh, working with the Navy SEALs, they they are always about innovation, just like you said, with the, using jet skis to do oper covert operations. Yes. Um, yeah. And I'm curious if you saw any other innovations that relate to surfing and surf forecasting when you were working with the SEALs, uh, Charlie. Well, for, for me personally, it just it pushed me to a, a much more detailed level because as I was just you know, assessing the customer and their needs, it just became apparent that you, you're dealing with this small footprint, this person sized, and you have to predict at that level rather than what's the general, which is general winds and seas and, and that level of detail. And so leading to like creating new methods of, you know, predicting these types of forces on people and, and really watching the operators come up with uh, different thoughts and ideas of, of how to integrate these systems into what they do. And so I see that quite often. It's just the way that they operate. They're like, oh, it's, it's, it's different than the regular military. It's a, it's a very entrepreneurial minded individual yeah. that makes up that group. And you share with me this forecast card, which is a, a really fine scale graphic that I, tell me how you, is that what you use with operators to give them a sense of how the ocean moves? And it's funny because uh, originally I, early on, I was uh, in the process of, of writing a book and it was about like all of these different things. And, and I just kind of came to the realization that, that people just, sadly aren't reading that much. And, and then when I started working with this group, I remember one of the operators, because I developed these courses with the operators alongside them and to, you know, through actual real world operations and, and trying to, you know, develop the best kind of training that would actually, you know, sink in. And, and so one of the guys I was working with who was integral in getting the funding for these kinds of things, he said, okay, Charlie, he goes, he goes, uh, no science, no technology, and you got 20 minutes. So I'm just like, you know how it is, as, as someone who does this, I do. you can't, you have to, and I'm so, okay, I got to cram this into a car. And so that was the development of that particular card where so much of what we do is, is looking overseas, looking at shorelines where we don't know what's Can, can I share that with Ian and Naraja? Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's, it's a way to take, I guess the, the humongous mountain of, meteorology, climatology, geosciences, and, you know, all these facets that go into it and just hydrodynamics, just a point. Yeah. Of hydrodynamics and just and distilling it down to, okay, this is just the, these are the key pieces that, that matter. Like it's, it's a it's brilliant, it's a brilliant product there, Charlie. And I, oh, I'm you. glad you're succeeding Appreciate so well.
Hey, uh, well, I, I would love to be doing this one in person and two uh, for a lot longer, but uh, we're about at an hour. So uh, if I could ask each of you to give any final thoughts on surfing and the blue economy, um, that would be a nice way to wrap up. And I'm going to go to Ian Kanga Carnes first, uh, professional surfer, founder of professional surfing and uh, entrepreneur now. Uh, Ian, any final thoughts? Yeah, there's. I go down to the beach early in the morning in Laguna Beach, and there are there are people walking their dogs, or people taking their shoes off, and maybe they're earthing, and they're just enjoying the beach life. I, I think the, the the blue economy needs to incorporate all of these people. Surfers are part of that tribe. The people that just want to go down to the beach and just enjoy the sun rising and the offshore wind. Um, and walking on the beach, they're part of they're part of this broader group of people that you know, that get personal uh, health and maybe spiritual benefits from going into this area. And then the um, so we need to put our arms around all of these people because the more people that we can get to collaborate on ideas, the bigger force we become in terms of dealing with the the wider world that we're in. Uh, can we can we get the city to place more focus on water treatment mm, yeah than it is on dealing with the homeless population you know what i'm saying that there's there's all of these um countervailing forces in terms of how local government spends their money that uh, we need to actually become better at uh, advocating for our area well said. I, I couldn't agree more. And that's really the purpose of my show. So uh, thanks so much for coming on, Ian. Oh, it's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you. And it's really great to hear different points of view. Yeah, I, I, we've had a really good group. And so let me go now to Niraja. Uh, Niraja Havaligi, you are the instructor in environmental sciences graduate program at Oregon, Oregon State University. You've been fantastic. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Thanks, Tim, for having me on the show, and it is a pleasure to hear Charlie and um, uh, Ian speak and to hear different perspectives and experiences. Um, before um, my final words would be just to for us to continue to be um, to engage with curiosity, um, irrespective of uh, where we are, what we do. Be constantly curious about things around you. In, and uh, open to solutions that um, and that is one thing I think whether we are working in blue economy or elsewhere whether we are working with surfers or uh, or you know larger communities which also include the surfers that is one way we can come together to solve problems as um, uh, Ian mentioned now and I'm really excited for the Global Environment Facilities Project, which is bringing together the surface and the biodiversity. And I can't wait to see where this will go. And I want to wish Charlie good luck with the book you mentioned. Uh, and thanks for having me on the show, Tim. Oh, well, you were so good. Terrific, Anuraja. Thank you so much. And love your remarks. Spoken like a true mentor and graduate advisor. I love that. And Charlie, Charlie Fox, uh, my former Navy shipmate and owner and lead forecaster of the Nearshore Wave and Weather Company, Seafox Surf. Charlie, anything else you want to share? Well, I, I think for, for me, it was, I had opportunity, we as my wife and I and my oldest son at the time was to Chuck. We escaped Southern Cal, moved to Kauai, and then we had our two additional kids who were born and raised on Kauai. And it, as a teacher there, a high school teacher, I, I became, you know, as a science teacher, it, I was sort of immersed in just the whole idea of like simplicity and stewardship with regards to like Hawaiian, the culture with the, the, the canoe plants, you know, this limited amount of resources that the Polynesians would, they brought to the islands and from those limited resources were just phenomenal stewards and so i'm thankful my my kids had opportunity to be raised in that environment and i think it might be a little different on Kauai because it's a bit more rural 
but I think that kind of picture of just how, like Ian was saying, how there's this whole sort of tribe. Everybody's using this coastal resource, and everybody's enjoying it, and it's just you know caring for it、uh, through that whole simple stewardship concept. I guess that's what I'd leave. That's that's terrific, Charlie, and that's so perfectly aligned with the theme of almost every one of my episodes. So. Uh, well done, shipmate. Thank you, and thank you, everybody. Here we are at the end of this latest leg of our journey.、Uh, I just think this was an epic episode, and、uh, of our American Blue Economy podcast, where we looked at surfing as an important element of the American Blue Economy. Please join us for our next episode in December. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time. 